the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. This is Martin Sobretti, and we are here on September 2nd, 2018, for more Chalcedon Q&A and a little meat of the word. I'm the Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation, uh, and we're involved specifically in education of Christians, re-equipping them for the battles before them, for the victory that uh, is in lieu in the future. So we take questions in advance. If you have questions in advance, uh, you can send them in at ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu, and then we receive them. Several of these came in over the course of the week. One of them just came in under the wire, and uh, just about two minutes ago before I was going to broadcast. So we try to get them in, and then we take live questions at that point, once we've uh, exhausted all the other ones. So we're going to start right off the bat with the very first question. <clears throat> Rush Dooney, Dr. R.J. Rush Dooney, spends a lot of time in the Institutes of Biblical Law, his magnum opus, stating that a confession isn't enough to convict an individual. Today's police techniques often rely on confessions in order to acquire convictions. Is this at its core an injustice? Well, biblically it is an injustice, and therefore it is, in fact, an injustice, particularly if someone's going to be deprived of their life from it. Uh, Rashtuni likes to use the example of uh, Achin, at the Battle of Ai, when he uh, took the forbidden material from the condemned city and hid it and buried it in his tent. And the point was that though he confessed to Joshua, the confession was inadequate. They actually also had to have another witness, which in this case was the corroboration of the evidence buried in the tent, uh, which everyone in the family of Aachen was uh, privy to, or Aachen, however you want to pronounce it. So in the combination of the confession plus another line of evidence was now sufficient for the uh, execution uh, that was required for what he was doing. Of course, because Israel was losing battles as a consequence of uh, what was going on uh, with the, uh, the, the, the theft in occasion by uh, Achan stealing from a condemned city, a city under the ban. So too now, <clears throat> I saw a large thread on this in Facebook earlier this week where they were arguing, once I was arguing in favor, that if a murderer confesses, that's enough to uh, take him out. And other points said, but we need another uh, witness, or at least a line of uh, testimony that constitutes a witness, like a physical witness, uh, hard evidence, the DNA evidence, say, or the body. Uh, and uh, so a conviction could be secured if someone confesses and says, and the body is buried here, and they find the body where he says then we would say that the knowledge of the location of the victim of the murder uh, plus the confession would then be two witnesses, uh, and that would constitute adequacy, as was the case that when Joshua had to apply justice uh, due to what occurred after the Jericho uh, victory. So, and of course, Rushtuni did not just write in the, about this in the Institutes of Biblical Law. He wrote a whole book about confession, 
which is the cure of souls. Now, a good part of the book has to do with Christian counseling, but it also has to do with false views of confession and the state's orientation to confession in respect to the uh, process of uh, <clears throat> police work, if you will, determining who is guilty for something, doing the due diligence, the scrutiny, and what is adequate and inadequate for this. And when confession was considered adequate, torture just shot up as a feature of the modern uh, jurisprudential realm. Uh, it, because if all you needed to do was get the confession, then you would do what it took to get the confession. And then once the confession was made, when someone confessed, then you had everything you needed. So torture then was legitimate and legitimized because of this false view of confession being adequate in its own right uh, to con uh, condemn somebody to death. So in the case of capital crimes, you do need to have two witnesses, and a witness can also be, like I said, a physical line of evidence, as it was in the case of the tent of Achan, who had, in fact, the buried treasure, the spoils of Jericho hidden in his tent. <clears throat> and of course, not today, with the law being what it is, and we have, always have appeal to this text from Isaiah, no, Psalm 9420, the wicked frame mischief using law, humanistic law, therefore elevates a confession as to adequate proof of guilt, uh, then we have a fundamental problem and we then do not get justice. And you can therefore put so much pressure on someone that they'll reason, I'm better off confessing though I'm innocent because the price of maintaining my innocence is too high. This is actually going to come into play with another question that came in this week. So <clears throat> modern humanistic law is always flawed in this respect. We recognize it when the um, to totalitarian regimes play this game, but we, when we do it, we don't see ourselves in the mirror as being totalitarian, but we are. So uh, the proper policing would also require the, the uh, actual extraction of enough sufficient evidence to uh, pull someone out of circulation, especially if it's a capital crime that's involved. You do not deprive someone of their life without the testimony of two or three witnesses. And again, like I said, a witness can also be a line of uh, evidence like DNA and things on that order. <clears throat> Shows again that biblical law is in fact pertinent to our existing uh, uh, circumstances in the modern world. <clears throat> Next question, which is raised to this. Uh, how important is it to set the record straight when someone slanders you or misrepresents you or your positions on something? Is it a fool's errand to attempt to write something like this, and could it not divert you from actual kingdom work? So if you're dealing uh, with a Tobias in a sandbellet who wants to pull you down from the Lord's work, you're better off uh, leaving your uh, reputation in God's hands because it's better to be thought well of by God and approved by God and condemned by men, especially if you're going to suffer wrongly, <clears throat> wrongly accused of things. So that'd be point one. We also have interesting examples throughout church history uh, of individuals who were accused of things and who declined to clear the record even though they were innocent. I believe Jonathan Edwards was uh, in this particular camp. Uh, he was accused of improprietary improprieties, of which he was completely innocent. But he uh, declined to answer them, uh, and of course that simply made them more prominent and uh, helped boost them, if you will. He didn't deny them. So as if the, the failure to deny constituted tacit consent. But his view is that uh, unless the kingdom of God is directly affected, uh, my reputation is not important enough to make an issue. 
and so he declined to uh, set the record straight unless he was convinced that the kingdom of God required him to do so. Uh, he was content to suffer at the hands of people who were despitefully using him, if you will, and uh, trashing his reputation. So, uh, and he was a very profound theologian, so he had his reasons for thinking this. You might say, oh, what a, a dummy. But Jonathan Edwards was no dummy. He's probably uh, smarter than any 20 seminary professors today put together. So if he thinks that that was adequate for his case, for us to suddenly uh, be anguished about, oh, someone made me look bad on, on Facebook, I better go in there with all guns blasting, that's not, neither a Jonathan Edwards approach nor is it, in fact, a valid approach uh, in other respects. Uh, there's another example I've brought before was Grover Cleveland. Now, it's not necessarily a Christian example, but he was accused of having a child out of wedlock. And uh, <coughs> the charge was false, as it turned out. But, uh, in, uh, and he knew full well that uh, the child was not his, but he went ahead and paid the child support anyway for the child, uh, which showed a level of character that we don't have today. Uh, now this, of course, fueled, put um, gasoline on the fire of the notion that the, it was his child since he was paying for it, but none of this was true. And it came out at the end, afterward, that uh, he simply did not want to see this child and the mother who was struggling with the child uh, be punished for their circumstances, if or however they came to be. Uh, so he stretched his hand forth and helped them, even at the expense of his reputation. Christ himself made himself of no reputation. We are aware of texts like this where they say, well, that's the Messiah. We're not supposed to, well, really? What would Jesus do? Sometimes you have to ask that. So a lot of times you have to say, if the kingdom of God is at stake, then I might have to go ahead and make a, a defense. I think Spurgeon made a point to that. He says, you have the liberty of uh, withholding a defense unless the kingdom of God and uh, its honor is at stake. Then it's a different story and then you are required uh, for the sake of the kingdom, not for your own reputation's sake, but for the sake of the kingdom, to set the record straight. Now, if, um, and that's where you have to have some judgment. Is the kingdom of God involved in this question? Uh, or do I simply operate around the uh, calumnies, as they say, the calumniator, and he's there uh, trashing you, trash-talking you on Facebook, say, uh, what do you do about it? Or they say, well, you hold exposition, and you don't. You can simply assert calmly, I do not, I hope you would stop representing, misrepresenting me, uh, and that leave it at that. Because the notion that we need to nag or get into a big f f flame war back and forth, that's not biblical either. In the Bible, having told someone once to desist from a false practice is considered adequate, uh, and um, nagging is not a biblical pers perspective at all. Uh, so there's a lot of things to be said in this area. But again, the point is, uh, you don't want to divert from Christian, uh, kingdom work, because this is the part of the point. If we can get you to come in here and fight and spend an hour on this Facebook page, that's an hour that is not used building. All things are to be done into edification, into building up the kingdom of God. And this is the requirement. So if this fight is not building up the kingdom of God, it's just a dumpster fire that you're involved in, got your fingers in, uh, the best thing is to cut your losses and, and, and hightail it out. Now, people will, will, of course, comment and say, oh, yeah, you couldn't answer our questions, you couldn't deal with our challenges, you admit defeat. But uh, you simply say, um, I am too busy to do, uh, I have work to do for God, and this is in the way of it. And I'm not going to tolerate that anymore, and I regret having participated in this to this, uh, this extent. And leave it at that. Uh, there's a lot of presumption and arrogance on Facebook, and it brings out the worst in Christians, not the best. It sometimes brings out the best, but by and large, it brings out the worst in us. So, uh, 
it's important to set the record straight in certain cases, and I'm going to get to that in the, the fourth question, which relates to the Ninth Commandment, where I have some relevant things. So we've not finished with this topic quite yet, but uh, we'll see some more expansion upon this idea in a little bit. Then the next question was, can you comment on the presence of Christ in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and what the different theological positions are? So the positions range from uh, the Roman Catholic view of uh, transubstantiation, that literally he is there, that the uh, elements have been turned into the body and blood of Christ, literally, uh, that there's been a change in the substance, uh, all the way to the atheist position that this is a fraud and there's no Christ there in any way, shape, or form, not even memorially because they don't believe Christ is real, that there was no Christ. So uh, between these uh, two extremes, you have the various positions that mediate and so the consubstantiation, uh, the sacred presence and um, sacramental union, things like this, uh, they all hold to the idea that uh, Christ isn't necessarily changed, the bread hasn't actually changed, but Christ is there with the elements. Uh, this has been assigned to uh, certain parts of Christendom where the presence is at least real. You see, you know, physically Christ is there in one shape or form, whether it was changed into that or not. Obviously the risk with the transubstantiation is this is the justification for the Roman Catholic Mass, which is very, very problematic right off the bat. But uh, once you move away from that extreme, as you move from the transubstantiation uh, and the pendulum swings along the spectrum, you get to the, um, the notion of a spiritual presence, what they call the, uh, the mystical presence, and that means that the um, Christ is present through or mediated by the Spirit himself, uh, sometimes called a pneumatic um, presence, if you will. And uh, this tends to be the position where most Reformed Christians fall. Uh, it's right, pretty much dead in the middle there. Once you go past that point where you no longer saying it's physically present, uh, whether by change of the substances or by being with the substances uh, or having a, a sacramental union, if you will, which are all kind of Greek ideas, which is why some people resent them or reject them, saying, hey, uh, the last thing we knew is to, needed to bring uh, philo philosophical constructs uh, from Greek uh, thought into the Christendom. So there's always been a general uh, resentment of these ideas of talking about substances and essences and things like that can w uh, push you over to the, the side of Greek uh, analytic thought versus Christian biblical thinking. So setting aside that risk, once you move past the idea that the Spirit is um, causing Christ to be present, but it's the Spirit that's there in actual fact, uh, then you move to what's known as a memorial view, that we do this merely as a memorial, and the Spirit is not causing him to be present, uh, nor is he physically present, but he's present in the um, sense that the believers gathered together, Christ is in their midst. So that kind of memorial presence, Zwingliism it's called. And then after that, you get to the various groups that um, don't even hold and wouldn't observe uh, Christian communion today. Uh, I learned early on that the Salvation Army um, members do not believe the legitimacy of modern uh, communion, the Lord's Supper. Uh, usually the questions I get is how often should it be um, conducted and things like this. But this is a very interesting question because we have a history here that uh, and, and everyone is, wants to argue and say, where should this pendulum swing? And so anyone who um, goes, when you're in a particular place in that spectrum, you look at the people above and saying they're going too far, and the people below saying they're denying how Christ is present here. 
so everyone has a view of their own position being correct and everyone else is being wrong, uh, which does not um, create huge problems, I think, except for the transubstantiation position, uh, insofar as we know that one day Zion shall see eye to eye, that this question will one day be resolved, according to Isaiah, that we will have doctrinal unity even on the meaning of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Uh, and when that meaning comes, uh, we won't be divided on this point. My suspicion is it's going to be more likely to be in the middle of the spectrum. Hmm. I think there's a lot to be said for the uh, the spiritual presence of Christ. That the, because I do believe the Holy Spirit is therefore uh, is in the world and he's in us and he's there. And this is, should not be too controversial. And nor do you get in serious trouble with the bending it or taking a few steps into the Greek analytic philosophical categories which now creates all sorts of uh, grief on its own. So, uh, Bill Evans, I'm not sure that the love feast of Jude was very, very different from the Lord's Supper. And uh, what happened to it is it seems to have been uh, regrettably dropped. So Dr. Rashtuni, of course, treated uh, communion as the love feast of Jude. Uh, and the very fact that we talk about blemishes on love feasts indicate that we have, a, if you will, a hedging of the table. But it was literally it was a feast. It was not just the uh, little teeny elements that are you know, like a small little wafer and a little thimble full of uh, wine or grapefruit juice. And there's a, there's a fight for you right there. Should it be wine or grapefruit juice? Uh, <laughs> we won't go there today. Uh, so we'll, if we want to fight on that, we're going to have discuss that on another occasion. But nonetheless, the point is, uh, the, the love feasts are in fact that, and I, and I believe that Dershowitz was right in holding to that, um, because uh, they didn't. That's why the uh, reason was given to wait. You know, if you're so hungry that you can't wait to eat the half communion, then eat at home first before you get to the communion feast. Uh, yeah, that is referred to in First uh, Corinthians. So, good question there. All right. Rushduni notes, this is the fourth question, in his institutes under the ninth commandment that the failure to represent God faithfully in his requirements to adhere to his law is bearing false witness against God. Can you expound on this? Now, uh, first thought always comes to mind is what is the duty of Levites? And of course, we're now a nation of Levites. Levites shall be the sands of the sea, a number under the new covenant. So that's why we're called a nation of priests. All of us have a priesthood. So when we talk about the priesthood of all believers, we're talking about the Levitical priesthood of all of us the fact that we're all Levites. And what does uh, God say about the Levites in Malachi 2? Uh, <clears throat> the law of truth was, was in his mouth, and the iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now that's a very, very heavy uh, obligation, big responsibility. If you're going to be the messenger of the Lord of hosts, if you're going to be the mouthpiece of God, you need to get his words right. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according to as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. So here we have this fundamental notion that uh, mishandling the law and representing it improperly to the people that you're conveying it to and have an obligation to give them the straight not either to the left or the right, but exactly the way God says it. They're not doing it. They're being partial in the law, and the people are being led faulty, uh, in a faulty way, and are stumbling as a consequence. So what do we see when we look out on the landscape of modern Christendom? Is many, many Christians stumbling. 
because they are led astray. They are led into the ditch because their leaders are blind guides in respect to the law of God. And they get some things right almost by accident, um, simply because their theories won't allow them to go all the way consistently with their antinomian presumptions. Also, with respect to representing God properly and the price to pay for having it wrong, I was minded of uh, Isaiah, Job 42, uh, where God speaks these words to Eliphaz the Temanite. He says this, this is verse 7, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Uh, there so forth, take the seven bullocks, etc., offer, uh, offer a burnt offering, and my servant Job will pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the thing that which is right, like my servant Job. So I think it's pretty important to speak right concerning Job, because God says yeah, he will out deal with us according to our folly of misrepresenting God on these points. Therefore, uh, probably one reason why Paul says not many people should be teachers, because it's a very, very heavy duty. You really have to do your homework. And if you're leading people astray, that's a really dangerous thing. And God's wrath, it says, is kindled against me because you've not spoken right concerning me. Now, notice that though there's three people speaking wrong according to God, what God did, there was one right. So the majority view is wrong. We had uh, the, the three buddies of Job getting it right, uh, getting it wrong, and they're outnumbering Job and they're ganging up on Job. And by the same token, we see a lot of folks who are opposed to the law of God uh, ganging up and uh, and joining in their uh, disapproval and, and their decommissioning the law of God. And I think this is going to also be problematic because you are then again being a blind guide. But you're telling people how to live their lives. And uh, then you fall into the same path as those who pretended to do so in the era of Christ. Mark is in his series uh, sermon series has been dealing a lot with the spiritual leadership of Israel and how they were out to lunch time and time again. And they were charged with keeping the oracles of God. That's what uh, Paul says is the benefit. He said, you know, they had the oracles of God. So why would they withhold them and misrepresent them and, and uh, destroy lives as a consequence? So all this to say we need to be serious about that because if we misrepresent what God's requirements are, uh, we have now substituted the word of man for the word of God. And no wonder there was wrath on uh, Eliphaz and his friends um, on account of speaking wrong according to what God expects and what God says uh, concerning the rule of God and how it's conducted. Now the good news is that Jesus is leading justice to victory. The law of God will go forth uh, and it has a bright future as the Old Testament and the New Testament indicates because our mission as we do everything at edification is that the law be established. Uh, nay, but we establish the law. So our view is that the law is a good thing, uh, and though we may misunderstand it, we're better off uh, dealing with, uh, with the parts that we know uh, and being forthright about them. And the parts we don't understand, we say, well, until I, I'm certainly going to assume it's binding until someone tells me different. In other words, you're better off to err on the side of uh, keeping more commandments than breaking them, right? If you're not sure, should I keep this one or not? The better bet is to keep it, because there's no harm in keeping it. Uh, Spurgeon made an interesting point. He says, you know, there's, you're not going to be losing out on any joys by keeping any of God's laws, but you will be uh, blocked from hurting yourself and, and suffering many griefs, griefs. So that's a good point there to be had. 
So when you have um, an antinomian system of law, an ethical system that is outside of the law of God or pretends to be better than the law of God, in other words, holier than God, nicer than God, uh, or it pits the New Testament against the Old Testament as if they weren't the same author of both, and they both breathe the same and point to the same thing, then you have a, a faith in your system. And these are humanistic systems of interpretation, and our faith in them can become arrogant and presumptuous. Uh, therefore, there'll be a case like, uh, I'll just name one that's uh, been a point of controversy, uh, head coverings for women. Now, I do not take the view that actual literal head coverings are what is being spoken of there. Nonetheless, I have tremendous respect for those people who read that verse literally because they actually walk according to their understanding of it. Uh, and that's how we need to operate. We need to operate in terms of the way we understand it. If someone can improve our understanding of it later, with a, uh, a more a tighter argument of what is actually happening in that passage in First Corinthians, uh, then that's fine. We can make an adjustment, but we're going to make an adjustment not um, uh, on better knowledge, if you will, better light. So you need to operate with the light that you have. And so there's to be, it's better to be respected saying, well, I will observe this versus I'm going to ignore it as, as worthless. Uh, nothing is worthless in it, even if it's misunderstood. Uh, so, in this instance, we have a case where it's not doing any harm. All right, I think um, there's a question here, Josh Wall, then I'll get to Bill's. What are some ways we can discern between temporal judgments for sin, and Ananias and Sapphira is a very good example that Josh brings, and something that happens as a sovereign act that is tragic and meant to display God's glory, but not necessarily as a temporal judgment, martyrdom or death of a young child? And of course, Job's case, uh, there was no temporal judgment per se on Job, uh, there was a sovereign transaction in, in play. And sometimes you can't tell the difference. Um, the problem, of course, with Job's friends is that their theology was a box. And they put the God and Job in the box. And God operated outside the box and pulled Job outside the same box. And they're still we're dealing with this phantom Job that they imagine must have sinned in some way, shape, or form. So it's theologies and systematizations that can get you in trouble. God seems to burst all our attempts to contain him, which is true. I mean, you know, like Rastani says, he, uh, he, he bursts the walls of the tomb, and he'll burst the walls of the church if the church tries to contain him too, because you cannot contain Christ. Uh, his, his power and his glory is to be manifested everywhere and to withhold it and to try to cramp it in and, and stuff it in like a spring into a box is going to be a dangerous thing. So uh, where there's a temporal judgment, uh, we then would say, okay, then we're, we must be seeing some evidence of a Deuteronomy 28 judgment. Now here's where it gets interesting. God can some, well, does promise the kind of judgments in Deuteronomy 28, but he also can withhold them. Here's another interesting verse, Josh, that I think is very pertinent to this, which uh, I like to deal with, is Psalm 11, verse 4. Everyone knows Psalm 11, 3, but the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But the next verse 4 is fascinating because it says that God tests the sons of men with his eyelids. What does that mean? Eyelids are where you used to close the eyes. So when I, my eyelids are operating, I'm closing my eyes. So God basically... Uh, tests us by closing his eyes. In other words, it seems like he's not hearing and not seeing the grief that we're going through, and it's a test. It's a test to see whether we will do right or not. In other words, character is formed by being put to the test. You temper the metal. You have to, uh, like in the book of uh, Malachi, God sits as a refining fire and, and uh, he 
purifies the sons of Levi, that's us. So some of this is all for character development and improvement, and it's to test the sons of men to see what they'll do. If you say, well, there is no God, therefore I give up, then the test has succeeded in showing that you had a very shallow faith and that you were a fair-weather follower of Jehovah because you thought he was a fair-weather God. But in fact, we already know in advance, the scriptures say he does test the sons of men with his eyelids. So we're on notice that he can stay silent for a long time. He was silent between the composition of St. Malachi and uh, suddenly appearing uh, to Zechariah, telling him about that his son would be the forerunner uh, for the Messiah. So all sorts of things can happen in God's sovereign actions. But so we need to be on guard to realize it. Then, of course, we need to examine ourselves. Did I do something wrong? Job did this, and he came up with the conclusion that he was guiltless of any of the things that he was being charged with. So he concluded there was something else at, at work, and he was right. There was something else at play that caused his grief. Okay, now I'm having a hard time getting, oh, there we go, scrolling now. Why do you suppose the Lord did not rebuke Elihu? Well. Uh, I've mentioned this before. Some people bristle at this, but Rashtuni uh, held to the view of Ginnung and several other scholars that uh, Elihu was a nobody and was ignored. In fact, what happens in the Hebrew text of uh, the end of Elihu's speech is that it's actually chopped off. He's, he tend, he's suddenly the, the cadence of the verses is accelerating and he's quick, trying to get finished to quick, quickly because the storm is coming. The storm is coming. Uh, uh, and, uh, and he's actually talk, talking about the appeal of the storm, which is obviously a supernatural one. And when in God asked the question, he says, Who is this uh, who darkeneth counsel with words without understanding? He's talking about Elihu. So in effect, he was not, uh, uh, he was rebuked with that one line, uh, you know, that he was darkening counsel with words without understanding. That it wasn't a, a directed to Job, but Elihu. And there's a lot to be said for Ganung's analysis. I've had one Chalcedon supporter uh, write me a personal letter indicating that, uh, giving me all the list of the reasons why Ganung was an unreliable guide. Uh, and Rashtuni was wrong to uh, support that position. Uh, and I can respect that someone would want to defend the a more traditional view uh, of the interpretation of that text. Nonetheless, I do believe that the, whether Ganung was a, a liberal in this area or had a problem in this other area does not. Uh, this is then an ad hominem critique of the commentator versus actually grappling with the text and the things that are in the text. So I believe that uh, there's every evidence that uh, Elihu was, in fact, rebuked directly in that comment, and it was not directed to Job, but was directed toward the one who just finished talking a moment before. Job had not been speaking for quite a while. There's three chapters or so of Elihu, and then God says, Who's this who darkeneth counsel with words without understanding? And that's Elihu. The young buck, who uh, Rashtuni says was a nobody. Rashtuni's way of uh, modernizing Ganung's language there. Now, I still have um, a question that came in uh, online. I want to take that before I'll get to Douglas's question. And this is a more elaborate question, and I, and I haven't had a chance to study it too, too much. But it's an interesting one. It sounds like a very practical one. I think it's the one that Rashtuni would do great at, at uh, answering, and probably is a little bit cl uh, farther afield from me. So I'll do what I can. My wife and I homeschool our children with virtually no intrusion from the civil government under our state's religious exemption law. I say virtually, though, because a letter that I am required to submit to first obtain this exemption for each child when he or she turns five must be sent again at the start of each successive school year in order for the exemption to be renewed. 
I hate this with all of my heart, as it is merely a means of them exercising as much control as they can, despite that my religious exemption is predicated on my arguing that they have no authority over me or my children whatsoever. In a future season of my life, when it seems prudent and I, when I have time, I hope to have a showdown with the school board as part and parcel to working to abolish the public school system altogether. In light of that, would you please comment on the wisdom and ethics of me disclosing each of my remaining small children to my country school board as they reach kindergarten age versus ignoring the law and going completely off the grid with my younger children? Sincerely, Andy Eckert. Well, if you're going to go ahead and do that fight, you probably don't want to have skeletons in your closet. Uh, when you write these letters, of course, which are what they are requiring every year, you can certainly uh, make your position known saying, I still uh, do not acknowledge <laughs> uh, this for these, for these children. Now, the reason uh, that the state does not treat this as a um, one-size thing but renews it every year is this is the operating life of the state's um, vista of vision. When the year is ended, even their budgets change, and now it's potentially new bureaucrats and new things and new filings, and everything has to be kept fresh and up to date. This is true for corporate filings, for exemptions. So, yeah, that whole state system, of course, is I'm not defending it, I'm, I'm explaining it. I'd like to see it go. But in the meantime, if you're operating under it and you don't have the hardly any mess, uh, um, molestation, which is not the case for many other Christians who do find exactly this level of, of uh, uh, more severe intrusion than you're encountering, it seems a little thing to do to um, keep them off your back. Uh, but I understand the principle at stake, and if you're going to go ahead and um, abolish a system, and uh, that can actually is easier than you think, believe it or not, um, and certainly in many states, they are so close to the uh, threshold, minimum threshold for keeping these schools open, they can be closed almost uh, just by Christians being consistent about pulling their children out. Excuse me. So, uh, there are several things at work here, and I'm operating in terms of the practical consideration. Uh, why is it that God uh, wants all flesh once a year to come up before him in, say, the um, final chapter of Zechariah 14, and then there's a discussion of something similar uh, for every new moon and every Sabbath, all flesh will come up and worship me, and then every year all the nations come up and worship God. Uh, in Zechariah, the nation that doesn't will this, this. Uh, God doesn't necessarily need that annual cycle, but it exists, and it's our way of every year, because every year, of course, he renews his promises to us. Uh, there's a new set of seasons, because the timing is built into the creation. We might say, once is enough, we've established that we're God's people, and we shouldn't have to go back and uh, have this annual feast, except that these are the milestones that God set for creatures. We are operated by time. We operate already with the day and the night. Um, there's going to be a period of time where it's going to be very difficult for me to see outside if I don't have a flashlight. So these are limits and restrictions and bounds to the creation that we operate within. Bounds of our habitation include temporal ones. And so the state, too, kind of mimics this aspect of God with its own uh, bureaucratic, bureaucratic cycles. Uh, interestingly enough, Rushdoony was not necessarily an enemy of bureaucracy. He thought it was great because it gummed up the government so badly. And it also uh, served as a uh, hedge against certain other uh, excesses. Um, bureaucracy uh, has its obvious problems, but the failure of bureaucracy, you get the, the, the anarchy and the total terrorism. So sometimes bureaucracy is to be preferred over that. Uh, but again, we're talking about two different kinds of evil at that point. We're not talking about the biblical standard versus uh, state standards, but different levels of state uh, interaction at that point. Um, 
there's a hazard if you're going to go completely off the grid, of course, because they can always come back around, and at that point you're going to have to count the cost, and God's going to have to fight on your side, because you're going to have your 10000 but they're going to have their 20000 and you need to be prepared for that. If you are prepared for that, if you have the resources and the legal wherewithal to fight that fight and win it, by all means do so. But if you don't, then don't be presumptuous and think God's going to save me out of this grief when all you have to do is send one letter a year, when many of our fellow Christians in other states have to do much more, and, and our fellow believers in Germany can't do this at all. So for you to be that concerned about that fine little letter once a year um, might be something that is um, penny-wise but potentially will pound foolish. Uh, and again, I'm only talking about practical matters. Now, and I'm not you know, saying thus saith the Lord, but rather do be aware that these are the issues that I'm sure you are, in fact, uh, looking at this. This is from Andy Eckert, who sent this request just before airtime. So I, I find it a very interesting question. Uh, I wish there was a more clear-cut thing where Scripture says you absolutely um, must not send any such thing regarding your children. Uh, but we don't have that when we're operating under Caesar's law at the point in time. Uh, we are By sending a letter, you are asserting Christ's um, hegemony, his superiority, his dominion over the state, you're saying, the king of kings tells me you cannot have my kid. And therefore, uh, I, I don't acknowledge your authority to put, have him required in a school, and this letter is, constitutes this effect. So you can certainly um, editorialize in your letters uh, and let them know the motive for which you're writing it. That it's a religious exemption, and it's because uh, Jesus is Lord and you're not. So, the evangelistic uh, component to that. Okay, so uh, there's a question I was asked by Chalcedon Foundation. Should we disregard Elihu's comments, whole cloth, or are there things to glean from that are positive? There are things to be gleaned from it that are positive. Um, but uh, they were closer to the mark in many respects, but he still was trying to say that Job is justifying himself against God. And uh, that was insofar as that he... He was upset with the other three guys because they didn't succeed in nailing Job, because uh, Job maintained his innocence. And uh, so Elihu has a mediating position. He's a little closer to the truth than his three buddies are, but not so much because there's a lot of uh, uh, self-glorying in him. There's some prizes, you know, I'm, uh, there's actually some, when he begins his exposition, you actually catch glimpses of, of a relatively proud young man I'm surprised he restrained himself to, uh, uh, until everyone else stopped talking based on how he sees his own content. Uh, he's that young Turk who's going out there and he's going to fix what the old guys failed to do. And point in fact, he did not. He actually failed of his mission. Nonetheless, uh, there's wisdom in a lot of the things he says, but they simply are not applicable to Job's sta state. They are true so far as they go, but they're mis being misapplied. So yeah, there's a lot of value in the things that Elihu says. Um, and the things that he appeals to uh, about how great God is and doing various things. Uh, and uh, they're all true. No one said they were true. But when he tries to apply them to Job as proof positive that uh, the Job was, uh, had guilt before God and it must have done something wrong to warrant this, uh, we have a problem. Because Job was standing up for himself, and finally God does stand up for Job too. Uh, and in some respects, Job's, uh, God's reply has some echoes of what Elihu said, but he applies it in a different way. Uh, he, he, he draws Job's eyes upward, whereas Elihu uh, fails to do that completely. Uh, what is 
Texit. Oh, uh, Texas ex uh, removing from the uh, Union. <laughs> uh, secession of Texas. We actually talked about this before, and I don't see the why, uh, if we're talking about the right of self-determination, uh, there's no reason why we, uh, if we're prepared to, to pay the price for that, uh, then by all means, uh, it, it, there's no reason why that union is, uh, is a sacred one. So uh, I don't have a problem with it. But what happens is uh, it becomes seen as a panacea. This will fix everything if we just pull out of the union. Well, it might, but now you're going to find that you're going to have all sorts of issues as a sovereign, or allegedly sovereign nation, because only God is sovereign. Uh, <clears throat> now that you become a separate nation, you're going to find that uh, you're going to trade those old problems for a whole bunch of new ones. And uh, yes, now you're going to be responsible for yourselves. You don't have to answer to Washington, D.C., uh, but then the surprises are going to start to come. So it's when it's peddled as a panacea that is something that fixes everything, it's a, it's a miracle fix, uh, we'll be happy once we're free of them. That means that all the problems that, that we face are due to being united with the other 49 states. And this, of course, misapplies the whole notion of where sin and its consequences arise. It starts with our own hearts. So Texans do not have pure hearts compared to Iowans or Minnesotans. They're all corrupt and need Christ. So the idea that simply uh, segregating a set of sinners will make that a paradise of some kind, of Texas paradise, it does not fly. But there might be reasons for, for pursuing that, uh, which I would not object to. But the idea of peddling it as, a, as an answer, a miracle answer that will solve all our problems, is maniacal. It's not going to solve, uh, it'll solve some problems and create brand new ones that we didn't anticipate. Uh, notice how difficult it is for Britain to exit the EU. Uh, they're dragging their feet, they are, there are people there hoping that it can be subverted, that the Brexit vote can be subverted. And then they're being clobbered with all sorts of um, um, punitive actions from the EU in terms of trade, what have you, to harm them, to, uh, to literally to punish them for daring to leave. Uh, so, yeah, you have to count all that cost too. But there's some benefit for them just because they were being pulled into an economic nightmare uh, based on the euro. And at least by separating from that, they can now control their own pound sterling. Now, they're also very good at corrupting their own pound sterling and debauching their own currency. So the idea that, oh, we're now we're free with the euro is going to fix everything, doesn't fly because their own uh, people, their own economic monetary policy is just as unbiblical, just as corrupt. And unless they want to get back on a pure silver standard of the pound sterling, uh, being free of the euro is not going to solve too many problems. Yeah, they're not hooked to their problems, but they're going to be hooked to their own problems. And then what do you do when you look in the mirror and that's your worst enemy? And this about happened to Texans as well. Okay, let me look at Doug's question. Thank you for reminding me, Ground Control. Is there any clear way of discerning sovereign judgments from the tribulations or sufferings in uh, Romans 5.3? Let me consult the passage. I actually spend a lot more time in Romans 5.12, which is one of my signature verses. But let's see what 5.3 says. Well, the... Um, when he's talking about, uh, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulations work with patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Hopeth maketh not ashamed. So it says what God is sovereignly doing is working through the tribulations, the thlipsis, and there's a word for you in the Greek. Uh, and consequently, you are in a position where uh, it has its effect of character building, uh, because patience is an element of character. Impatience, obviously, is not. 
Uh, and so there we see we start to enter the chain that's described elsewhere in the, in the book of James, for example, that leads to uh, perfecting us in righteousness. So there's a personal benefit to be had depending on how we approach these circumstances that we find ourselves in. Uh, sometimes we see it on the horizon that there's going to be a tribulation coming, and then how we're going to handle it. it's going to tell us a lot about us. Not so much about God or about our persecutors, but about us. You know, what we do in response to it and how we handle it. Paul is a very good example of how to handle it well, um, but there are those who present a very, very different model. So the question is, is discerning between sovereign judgments from the tribulations. Uh, a judgment would always, I guess you could say that from one sense, there was a sovereign judgment on Paul insofar as he had a thorn in the flesh, and he besought the Lord to take it away, but he says, no, my grace is sufficient unto you. So he has this in a thorn in the flesh, however you want to represent it, and I don't need to go into any of the theories, some of which are very, very far-fetched, to try to explain it. And I think it's more important that we uh, understand why it's there than what it was. But whatever it might be, it represented a form, if you will, of temporal judgment. Now, is it temporal judgment simply that he's a sinner like everyone else, and therefore is in the same lot with us? After all, the only person who seems to be exempt from sin, but, uh, but otherwise suffered everything as we do, was Christ himself. So all of us have sin. And this reminds me again of what David said when Shimei was running along the roof lines and throwing sticks and rocks at him and cursing him. He's let him curse. Could be that God sent him to curse, that God knows my heart that I did something wrong and he sent him to curse me. Even though he's cursing me about his wrong, uh, I'm guilty of many other things and consequently I would uh, have this. So you would then let the work of God, uh, the, uh, whatever it be, the, uh, the heavy hand of God, work upon us patience so that then we gain hope and then we seek his face over these things. They're to drive us to God, basically, so that our final resting place, our final resource is always going to be God. We need to be abide in the vine, as the phrase is in John 15, which means to, to secure everything from him, not from our own strength or from our fellow men, but rather from God alone. And once we rely solely on God alone, we're in a good place. Uh, and our conduct will be changed as a consequence. God's not going to let us stay in the dark too long about these things. Uh, he will drive us to the truth. He'll illuminate us. Uh, and one way to get that, and I say don't hesitate to keep praying for it, pray for wisdom because God will give wisdom to those who pray for us. James asserts this and many Christians are not busy praying for wisdom. I, uh, I can see sometimes Christians in a group saying, give us wisdom about this coming decision, Lord, uh, which is fine as far as it goes. But most of the time we assume everything is going hunky-dory and we really need to be closer to Job's position when he says, perhaps my sons have sinned and I need to send up a uh, offering to God for them and pray for them concerning this. So um, he was even saying, uh, perhaps, hypothetically, there's a problem. I, sh I should deal with that. So, all that to say, uh, if we're proactive, even leaning forward in the saddle with respect to these things, we probably won't be in a, in a bad way when push comes to shove. Excuse me, I'm going to hydrate and then get with the next question. All right. Still time to read the nature. Let me see what time it is. Yeah, we have another 14 minutes. Still time to read the nature of the American system. Okay, so. Um, kind of make this our last call uh, for the book uh, of the Month Club. Uh, Chris Zimmerman and Andrea Schwartz will be putting that on uh, in two Mondays from now. So you're going to want to, uh, I guess the, this coming Monday, next Monday, right? Next Monday. 
if I'm not mistaken. She'll correct me if I'm wrong. You can sign up for that, and there's still time to read the book. It's uh, a little bit heavier to read than some other Rashtuni's uh, books. Uh, if you had to read a political book by him, Thine, uh, uh, This Independent Republic is the easiest of the reads. This, um, the uh, Nation of the American System is a little bit more complex, but what he gets down to is just as important in this text. And so if you've not participated in the Book of the Month Club discussion, uh, but would like to go through it, by all means, get a hold of that. And we always post the results online at calcedon.edu, uh, so people can then get an introduction to the book and see us discussing it. And sometimes it might excite you to say, I want to get that book, excuse me, uh, because it's exactly what I need for such and so. And I think we've done almost two dozen with many more to go. So they're all going to be very, very good. Okay, so on the 10th, yeah. Um, not on Labor Day, because it's Labor Day. Uh, I'm sorry if we don't get a question about whether Labor Day is valid. Uh, I hope we don't, but you never know. All right, are there any more questions pending? I think I answered everything that was uh, up on the docket. Again, if you want to ask questions in advance, send your questions to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. Uh, they come to me, sometimes they come to me right before, uh, as, as occurred here. Uh, so, so we like to see them come in at least an hour before. usually get them out through the week. Oh, yeah, that's another good point. Uh, the the May-June issue of Faith for All of Life never was printed, but we finally uh, went ahead and finished it out and posted it digitally online at calcedon.edu. Uh, it is a... Um, an examination of the life and work of Jean-Marc Bertou, the Swiss Rashtuni. And it's a fascinating issue. We're glad to be able to present it and uh, uh, let the other shoe drop finally and uh, close out the, uh, the existence of Faith for All Life with this final issue. So if you have not read it yet, uh, you're not going to be able to read it in the physical print unless you print it out from the PDF, uh, but you can read it online. And it is a worthy read, by all means. We have a contribution even by Dr. Douglas F. Kelly, a professor of emeritus of theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, who, circa 1983, was uh, editor of the Journal of Christian Reconstruction and uh, operated at Chalcedon, was part of the staff at Chalcedon uh, in the early 80s. So, uh, and so he's explaining the value and the need for, Dr. for Bertou's work and contributions today. So it's very important to realize that Reconstruction is not just in your own backyard, but it starts there, but it also includes what's going on on the other side of the Atlantic, includes what's going on in China and India and other places. Uh, so to see what's going on in Switzerland, which was the birthplace in some respects of the Reformation, is a very, very profound thing and very, very helpful. The Ground Control has put up the link, and if you uh, see that link, it'll bring you to the entire Faith for All of Life. You can read it either article by article online uh, as web pages, or you can click to read the PDF, which reads like it is the magazine. Uh, it's formatted exactly like the magazine was. You can actually print it out and have it like, put together a physical copy of the last issue of Faith for Life. But that did not print and mail to anybody, but it is now available for the entire world, and so we're able to meet our obligations to the authors who invested the time to do that. In the meantime, uh, Chalcedon's publications are Arise and Build, which is the new uh, vehicle for promoting... Uh, the construction of God's kingdom, uh, the Chalcedon Report, these two alternate every other month, and then the new Journal of Christian Liberty, which is the successor to the Journal of Christian Reconstruction. And uh, we're busy working on that. In fact, I'm here uh, with some of the materials for that mat uh, particular journal, which is going to make a big splash with its first uh, publication. 
we're actually going to be dealing with abuse in two parts. So the, the uh, first journal, which will appear toward the end of this year, um, will be part one of abuse in all its forms and the biblical responses to it. And then the, we'll resume with another uh, volume two of abuse, in other words, part one and part two. So the first two are going to do it with one of the most pressing issues of the day, which is the various forms of spiritual abuse and uh, legislative abuses and all things related to this area where we are shooting the walking wounded and the church's obligations, its uh, huge failures, and fortunately we have some success stories. And the success stories are in the minority, but it's good to have them because it holds out hope that there is, in fact, uh, examples of churches doing the right thing and what a profound difference the results are when the church acts biblically according to God's law. Uh, it is, brings healing, it brings light, it brings a, restores futures. And when the church plays the modern game of cover-ups and collusion uh, and uh, other nonsense, uh, rather, the damage and the injuries are long, persistent, and stretch into subsequent generations. So we have a choice to go one direction or the other, and the journal maps this out in a very, very powerful way. And then we'll move into more areas of interest for Christendom at that point. Yeah, um, Roger Oliver, who uh, loves seeing things in large print, uh, is able to uh, magnify the thing once he puts it on his iPad or other device. So it's good to have that. Uh, ground control, any reason for us to take it? If there are no more questions, we're going to go ahead, and I didn't see any other questions, and close out for the day. Um, last chance. All right. I don't see any questions, so we're going to close out for today. Enjoy the long weekend if you're in America, and um, we will see you next week. And uh, look forward to catching up with you. Again, send your questions to the address on the screen. Ask.kelsedon at kelsedon.u. Oh, <laughs> should Christians pay much attention to what comes out of the Pope's mouth? <laughs> well, that question goes back to the Reformation now, doesn't it? Uh, if he happens to say something biblical, uh, I guess we have to pay attention to it, right? Uh, but uh, after that point, yeah. oh, yeah, so mind you, I know we have the minutes. So I guess you're going to get some questions thrown at me that have been saved up for me. Lucky me. Uh, so, okay, yes. So, uh, because he's a leader of a large sector of um, um, individuals, what he says has some importance, but not doctrinal importance, even though um, we say, well, he's speaking ex cathedra. Well, not from the point of the view of the Protestants and the evangelicals, he does not. Uh, his authority is to be restricted and limited to when it, what he says agrees with the Word of God, otherwise, he does not have doctrinal authority. To law and the testimony, if it speaks not according to these, it's because there's no light in them. So when he purports to be introducing doctrines or reshaping them, we don't have to pay attention to it. Uh, and there are certain sectums, sectors of Roman Catholicism who don't pay attention to the Pope either. Uh, not because they're liberal, but because they're conservative and they regard the Pope as um, a false Pope, if you will. It's very interesting to, to speak with these individuals who hold out a different hope for uh, their um, that particular branch of uh, the the church. Rushdoony spent a lot of time talking about uh, various bulls and encyclicals in the end of Christianity in the state, showing the relationship of Roman Catholic thought uh, from the Reformation forward to the state. So it indicates something very interesting that is going on there that is worth knowing about. It's a very different thing than saying whatever the Pope says goes. But it's saying there's important things to consider there, and he was one of those willing to look everywhere where there was something 
worthy to uh, pull in and discuss and, and shed light upon from his perspective, because he's applying the law of God to everything, which is what he's supposed to do and what we're supposed to do. And uh, yes, we do rejoice uh, that those cataracts are fixed. I have very mild cataracts, uh, but maybe in five years I'll be going through the kind of operation that Roger Oliver did. But it's a joy to know that reading is not the trial that it used to be for him. He's our man in Mexico down there at Puebla doing some amazing things uh, and uh, fighting against the state tooth and nail insofar as their attempts to try to shut down an independent voice for schooling according to the Word of God. So uh, it's, it's a big deal. You know, Mark talked about people being put out of the uh, synagogue for sticking up for Christ. There's a fear, of course, in Mexico of being put out of fellowship and being in the wrong end of things, wrong, having the wrong end of the stick, if you're not towing the line with keeping your kids in public schools. So it's a big deal to pull out and actually become uh, independent and go to a Christian school like the Pierre Verrier Learning Center that uh, Roger Oliver has set up. So it takes courage. These are courageous Christians there. And do pray, pray for more courageous Christians in that area because that's the hope of Mexico. Right. Yes, that book there, Christianity in the State. Uh, it always surprises uh, Christians when Rashtuni has a dialogue or discusses something with a Roman Catholic scholar. Uh, it's because Dr. Rashtuni uh, would not restrict his scope of vision in a provincial way. Uh, it is always theoretically possible that someone might have a kernel of truth here that is valuable that a Protestant missed. Uh, and uh, we don't want to have to wait on it. So he would say, he would look and see. He never changed his mind about being a Presbyterian, but nonetheless, uh, that was the way it worked with him. Okay, I think we're good for today, uh, and we will uh, see everyone next week. Uh, put, bring those questions in, and uh, again, pray for Chalcedon. Do what you can to support Chalcedon. We're here because you folks are uh, Christians that are interested in the building of the kingdom of God, and uh, brick by brick, and so that's why we're there. And we appreciate that... Uh, you're with us and supporting us. Thank you again. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.